Last time we spoke about Operation Hailstone, the continued drive upon Madang, and the horrible massacre during the Indian Ocean Raid of 1944. Operation Hailstone saw what was once called the Gibraltar of the Pacific, truck nearly annihilated. The demoralized and understrength Japanese could not hope to contest the airstrikes and naval bombardment. Vice Admiral Kobayashi Masami was held responsible for the defeat and he was relieved of his command. Over on New Guinea, the Australians were continuing their drive upon Madang, killing countless and taking prisoners along the way. Then over in the Indian Ocean, Vice Admiral Takasushiro unleashed a raid against Allied shipping, a rarity for the Japanese. Unfortunately, the raid devolved into a singular attack against the British steamer Bahar. A cruel and needless massacre was performed upon the Tone, killing 65 to a possible 100 people. Such actions would only see justice after the war. This episode is The Battle of Any We Talk. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. Before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released part three in my Kanji Ishiwara series, which was once an exclusive on my Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Over there, I have more than 13 plus exclusive Patreon podcasts on a variety of different subjects. So if you want to support me, go check it out. Operation Flintlock was a huge success. Gwajalain was seized incredibly fast and the invasion of Majuro saw no Japanese even on the atoll. Because of this, the Allied war planners had to shuffle their schedule around, and thus was born Operation Hailstone and the invasion of Eniwetok. Eniwetok had originally been slapped for May, but it seemed obvious the Japanese power in the marshals was crumbling a lot faster than anticipated. Consequently, Admiral Nimitz knew it would be necessary to capture the atoll to give shelter to all the ships he intended to deploy westward in the drive against the Japanese inner empire. Since it now seemed Brigadier General Thomas Watson's 8,000 reserve troops of the 22nd Marines and the 106th Regiment would no longer be required, Admirals Spruance and Hill began preparing them for the invasion of Eniwetok. The operation was codenamed Catchpole, and the war planners would only have 12 days to prepare. Moving up the invasion of Eniwetok required stripping the new garrisons of Kwajalein Island and Roynamer of manpower and supplies. The landing boat crews were Greens, not trained with the troops. General Watson reported, The infantry, amphibian tractors, amphibian tanks, tanks, aircraft, supporting naval ships, and most of the staffs concerned had never worked together before. Nevertheless, the forces available for the operation would be plentiful and well-equipped. Having gone through the horrible, bloody assault on Tarawa, Admiral Hill was relieved to have a large number of Amtraks this time. 
The Army's 708th Provisional Amphibian Tractor Battalion would sail with 119 LVTs, most of which were heavily armored, newer models, as Hill would remark later on. At any wee talk, I felt like a millionaire, but at Tarawa, I was a pauper. Admiral Hill would have at his disposal five attack transports, one full transport, two attack cargo ships, one cargo ship, one LSD, two destroyer transports, six LCIs, and nine LSTs to carry General Watson's Tactical Group 1, which consisted of the 22nd Marines and the 106th Regiment, who were going to be led by Colonel John Walker. Further support came in the form of three battleships, three heavy cruisers, and seven destroyers of Rear Admiral Jesse Oldendorf's Task Force 51.17. Then there were three escort carriers and three destroyers of Rear Admiral Van Ragsdale, and his task group was 53.6, and Rear Admiral Samuel Ginder's Carrier Task Force 58.4. The plan was first to land two scout companies, the first being the Reconnaissance Company, 5th Amphibious Corps, against Camellia and Canna Islands, southeast of NB, and then there was the Scout Company D of the 4th Marine Tank Battalion against Zinia Island, northwest of NB, to prevent any escape of the enemy from NB in that direction. The scouts would secure Camellia and Canna, allowing the 2nd separate Pack Howitzer Battalion with their 75mm Pack Howitzers to deploy on Camellia and the 104th Field Artillery Battalion with their 105mm howitzers to deploy on Canna. The artillery would then be used to support the next day's attack against Engi B. The job of hitting Engi B was given to the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 22nd Marines of Colonel John Walker. His 3rd Battalion would be kept in Regimental Reserve. The two battalions were to be supported by medium tanks of the 2nd Separate Tank Company and a platoon from the Cannon Company 106th Infantry who had two 105mm self-propelled guns. Lastly, Colonel Russell Ayer's 106th Regiment would hit Eniwetok Island, and once it was captured, the infantry would take Perry Island along with the 22nd Marines. Defending against them would be General Nishida's 1st Amphibious Brigade, organized from the 3rd Independent Garrison Unit. It consisted of three 1,036-man mobile battalions, a 67-man machine company unit, six 20mm guns, 66-man tank units, who had nine Type 95 light tanks, a 243-man engineer unit, a 139-man signal unit, and a 190-man medical unit. The first mobile battalion had a 103-man first company, while the other two had 197-man companies, plus a 155-man motor company, a 121-man artillery company, with three 75mm mountain guns, two 37mm anti-tank guns, and 66 men engineer platoons. These units had recently been brought over alongside his HQ. 250 IGN personnel and 1,115 troops were deployed on Perry, about 692 soldiers, 500 IGN personnel, and 61 men of the 61st Guard Unit would be on Engbi, and only 779 troops under Lieutenant Colonel Hashida Masahiro, commander of the 1st Mobile Battalion, would be defending any Wetok. In the six weeks following the Kwajalein assault, the Japanese had been constructing defenses on the lagoon side based on reports they received from the Kwajalein attack. Yet there would not be nearly enough time to make much progress. The three defended islands of the Aniwetok Atoll had no naval manned defenses, other than two 120mm coastal defense guns and two 13.2mm twin machine guns on Engby's northern corner. 
375 millimeter and 28 20 millimeter anti-aircraft guns had been delivered, but they were not even in place. The 1st Amphibious Brigade arrived less than a month and a half before the Americans would land, with barely any time to dig in. While significant construction materials had been delivered, there was not nearly enough time to make much progress with them. Defenses would be mainly dugouts, trenches, and foxholes. The brigade deployed its infantry weapons more or less equally. Angibi was expected to be the most heavily defended, but instead most of the troops were actually on parry. On February the 15th, Hill scouts sailed out from Kwajalein Lagoon while Operation Hailstone smashed truck. Meanwhile, Geithner's carriers proceeded directly to Eniwetok and on February the 16th launched a series of preliminary strikes. The strikes completely destroyed all the buildings upon the atoll, neutralized her airfield, and destroyed 14 aircraft on the ground. Naval bombardment of Engibi, Eniwetok, Perry, and Japton Islands began in early mornings of February the 17th, and it was joined by even more airstrikes after dawn. Simultaneously, Hill's forces arrived off Eniwetok's southeast coast. As the surface ships bombarded the islands, aim tracks landed and landed by 1.30 p.m. against Camellia and Kana. After securing Kana and Camellia by 2 p.m., the reconnaissance company landed against no opposition on the three islands northwest of Camellia and on the two smaller islands unmanned west of Kana. These landings were made to offer security to the artillery units against possible Japanese infiltration during the night. Hill then landed his two artillery battalions to support the invasion of Angibi. Angibi's total weapon strength came to two flamethrowers, 13 grenade dispatchers, 12 light machine guns, four heavy machine guns, two 37mm guns, a single 50mm motor, 11 81mm motors, one 20mm automatic gun, two 20mm cannons, two mountain guns, three light tanks, and two 12cm coastal defense guns. Colonel Yano predicted that a heavy bombardment would precede the amphibious landings. He accordingly planned to concentrate his defensive system on the lagoon shore of this triangularly shaped island. The Japanese defenders were ordered to, quote, Lure the enemy to the water's edge, and then annihilate him with withering fire and continuous attacks. Most of the prepared defenses and over half of the brigade detachment were concentrated at the center of the lagoon shore. The approach to the strong point was flanked by fire of two 75mm mountain guns on the northwest corner and two 20mm machine cannons in the southern part of the concentration itself, as well as two 37mm guns in place on the southern tip of the island. Frontal fire could be delivered by the 20mm automatic guns and the three light tanks, each mounting 37mm guns as well. Hill deployed UDT-1 frogmen to clear obstacles and mines, while D Company of the 4th Tank Battalion secured Ziana and four other inlets west of Engibi in the early mornings of February the 18th. At 6.55, the USS Colorado and Louisville began shelling the northern and eastern part of Engibi as Tennessee and Pennsylvania moved at dawn to deliver close-range destructive fire against the beach defenses from flanking positions on each side of the boat lanes. At 7.20, destroyers Phelps and Hall moved into position as direct support ships, but because of all of the smoke and the dust rising from the island, Hall was unable to fire. Just before 8 a.m., the naval guns ceased their fire to allow a half-hour airstrike to take place. This was completed ahead of schedule, and naval fire was resumed at 8.11. It increased steadily in intensity until just before the first troops would be landed. Shortly after the airstrike was lifted, artillery on Canada and Camellia joined the naval guns and began to fire on the beaches at maximum rate until just after the first wave landed at 844, 
whereupon the artillery barrage was lifted inland to the center of the island for another five minutes. Thereafter, because of the smallness of this island, very few call missions were fired. All of the gunfire detonated the main ammunition dump on Engi B as Colonel Walker's Amtrak's made their way to the island covered by LCI gunboats. Many of the LCI rockets fell short, forcing some Amtraks off course, while quite a few would break down as they had been worn out by the attack on Quangeline. Despite the technical difficulties, the first assault waves hit the beaches at 8.43. The 2nd Battalion hit Beach Blue 3, with G Company on the left, an F Company in the center, and E Company on the right. The 1st Battalion would hit Beach White 1, with B Company on the left, A Company in the center, and C Company on its right. Over on the left, the 2nd Battalion pushed forward rapidly, bypassing isolated points of resistance and quickly overran the airfield by 10.30 a.m. F Company managed to swing towards Weasel Point on the western corner with remarkable speed. Over on the right, the 1st Battalion quickly split up with A Company advancing north to New Point and C Company towards Skunk Point on the southeast corner. The Japanese put up a stiff fight against them as their spider hole defenses on the gap between the two companies were covered by a dense brush and palms. As a result, the 3rd Battalion would land at Beach White 1 at 9.55 a.m. and quickly advance with tanks to clear the various tunnels and cover over foxholes that resisted them. The Japanese were slowly forced northward along the island's eastern shore, eventually becoming isolated and cut down. By 1.10 p.m., Weasel and New Points had been cleared, and at 2.50 p.m., about six hours after the initial landing, General Watson declared the island secured. Six minutes later, C Company captured Skunk Point, and by 6.30 p.m., the 1st Battalion secured their half of NKB. The assault had been executed so fast that even the veteran IJ defenders were unable to offer any meaningful organized resistance. Bypassed Japanese troops and infiltrators did cause some difficulties throughout the night, but mopping up continued and Engibi was formally secured at 8 o'clock on February the 19th. The American losses would mount up to 85 dead and 521 wounded against over 1,280 Japanese deaths and 16 prisoners taken. For the assault against Eniwetok, new intelligence indicated that the island was more heavily defended than expected. So Watson would reinforce 106 Regiment with Walker's Reserve 3rd Battalion and some other Marine tanks. What they would be facing on Eniwetok was a total of two flamethrowers, 13 grenade dischargers, 12 light machine guns, two heavy machine guns, one 50mm motor, 11 81mm motors, one 20mm automatic gun, three 20mm cannons, and three light tanks. The Eniwetok garrison was divided into five forces, three on the lagoon shore, one placed so as to cut off the narrow eastern neck of the island, and one to be held in the reserve. The three lagoon shore forces were to place their weapons so as to obtain interlocking bands of fire over the surface of the lagoon. The force in the east was to protect the rear of the three lagoon shore forces from any American units landing on the northern tip of the island. The reserve force was placed to the rear of the forces on the lagoon shore, near the western tip of the island. The defenses of the island consisted mostly of foxholes and trenches, which were better constructed and better camouflaged than those on Perry. After the capture of Kwajalein, the Japanese had begun construction of concrete pillboxes on the southwest tip of the island, and they had dug additional foxholes. Landmines were also found all over Eniwetok. Colonel Ayer's new plan was to land his two battalions abreast. The first battalion would land on the right of Yellow Beach 2, 
and was charged with making the main effort to the west to clear the lower end of the island. The third battalion would land on Yellow Beach 1 and form a covering line just east of the road that bisected the island from the lagoon to the ocean shore. For the assault, the infantrymen lacked field artillery support, and although Eniwetok had been subjected to naval bombardment on February the 18th, it had only received a fraction of the bombardment compared to Angibi and Perry. A total of 1,179.7 tons of naval shells had been fired at Angibi. 944 tons were used on Perry, but Eniwetok received only about 205 tons altogether. At 8.10 a.m. on the 19th, carrier planes began to bomb and strafe the beaches, as LCI gunboats followed this up with last-minute rocket attacks against the landing areas. Meanwhile, the arrival of marine tanks was delayed by choppy seas, and a 9-foot embankment just inland halted the amphibian tanks, but the Americans would manage to hit Yellow Beaches at 9.16. The 3rd Battalion landed on Beach Yellow 1 with L Company on the left, K Company on the right, and I Company following up on the reserve. Upon landing, L Company followed by I Company pivoted east along the pier, while K Company pushed across the island to reach the opposite coast at 10.30. Over on the right, however, the 1st Battalion encountered dense spider hole defenses as C and B Companies attempted to push across the island while A Company attacked southwest along the coast. By noon, the front line of the 1st Battalion was in the shape of an S, extending from the lagoon to the ocean. The Japanese at this point made a bit of an unexpected move. As the Americans penetrated further inland, the Japanese began abandoning their positions and they launched a 400-man counterattack. The Japanese managed to break through just before getting completely cut down, causing some havoc. But by 12.45, they were beaten back. The American casualties were very high during the fight. Because of the strong resistance, Ayers ordered his 3rd Battalion to attack east and for his reserve marines to land and relieve the left half of his 1st Battalion's line of defense. The American attack to the west resumed with A Company on the right wing making slow progress through the enemy positions near the lagoon. Meanwhile, some confused elements of the C and B companies were trying to reorganize themselves and they were being supported by three cannon company guns. They could not push through the line taken up by the enemy at the end of his counterattack. Although they had steadily reduced the Japanese positions, the attacking force was simply unable to move forward. By 2.25, the 3rd Battalion, 22nd Marines landed, passing through Ayer's 1st Battalion one hour later. Both battalions then launched a concerted attack towards the southwest end at 3.15. Yet the Marines would soon lag behind, their advance delayed by the rugged terrain and the lack of adequate illumination and tank support. While the fight for any Weetok was underway, the Amphibious Reconnaissance Company occupied Japtan by nightfall after first securing 10 unoccupied inlets on the atoll's eastern rim while the Scout Tank Battalion secured eight inlets on Eniwetok's eastern rim, successfully subduing the enemy resistance on Rigili. This would all allow Watson to have some much-needed artillery support for the attack against Perry. Over on Perry, the Japanese were able to construct very few installations and gun positions above ground level. In the short time, the brigade was even there. With very few exceptions, the defenses consisted mostly of foxholes and trenches. Now these fell into two categories the old and the new. The old foxholes and trenches were located on the ocean side. They were very well constructed and often lined up with rocks or coconut logs. Relying on their estimation of American amphibious tactics, as demonstrated against Tarawa, the Japanese had recently undertaken heavier defenses on the lagoon side. These were freshly and hastily constructed, therefore inferior. All of the entrenchments were well camouflaged. 
A typical strongpoint consisted of a spiderweb pattern of entrenchments. In the center of the web was a large personnel shelter lined and covered with coconut logs. Strips of corrugated iron and a thick layer of sand were placed over the log roofs. The center was surrounded by a circle of foxholes 10 to 15 feet apart, mostly roofed over with corrugated iron. These holes were connected with one another by narrow trenches or tunnels. The trenches and tunnels on the outer edge of the web were in turn joined by radial trenches and tunnels to the shelters or control foxholes in the center of the position. The entire web was extremely well camouflaged and very difficult to locate. Perry was honeycombed with such positions of this sort. Now back to the action. To deny the enemy an opportunity for the customary aggressive night tactics, Ayers ordered a night attack at 650. At 3.33 on February the 20th, Ayers 1st Battalion therefore managed to reach the western end of the island, though the Marines were still 100 yards to their left rear. The Japanese meanwhile attempted to probe and infiltrate through the night, finally counterattacking at 9.10. The 3rd Battalion 22nd Marines found one of the main enemy defenses manned by a strong and determined force at the southwest corner of the island in its own. A combined force of light and medium tanks, five guns from the Cannon Company 106 Infantry, and a supporting rifle company from the 1st Battalion 106 Infantry joined the Marines in destroying the enemy during the day. The 1st Battalion 106 Infantry mopped up its zone. The next day, after the withdrawal of the Marines, the battalion ran a line across the island from the pier and mopped up the western end. A Company at the right finished first and returned to the battalion area near the landing beach. B Company in the center reached the end of the island a little later and then went for a swim. C Company on the ocean side found 22 of the enemy hiding and destroyed them in a firefight that sent some bullets over the heads of B Company swimmers. B Company came out of the water, dressed and rejoined the fight. The western end of Eniwetok Island was finally clear of Japanese. By 2.45, the stronghold was finally reduced and the western end of Eniwetok was at last secured. To the east, Ayer's 3rd Battalion also attempted to continue its attack during the night, but this proved futile as the troops lacked the confidence and experience for such a difficult task. As such, the battalion halted at 4.30, about a third of the way from the island's northern end. They resumed their attack at 7 on the 21st, finally reaching the northern end at 4.30. The island was finally declared secure at 5.21, with the Americans losing 37 killed and 94 wounded against 800 Japanese deaths and 23 taken prisoner. Because action had been bogged down at any Weetalk, the assault on Perry was delayed until the island was reduced, and Walker's 3rd Battalion could re-embark on the regimental reserve. In the meantime, aerial naval and artillery shells had pounded Perry for over three days. Naval bombardment against Perry totaled some 944 tons, considerably more than the weight delivered against any Weetalk Island. The weight of the artillery shells came to 245 tons, and for aerial bombs, it added another 100 tons or more. Meanwhile, the rest of the 22nd Marines were brought from Engibi to southern Eniwetok. By this point, the expedition was running low on ammunition and weapons. Naval and artillery shells were carefully apportioned. From all the ships, available grenades and demolition charges were gathered. To supplement them, 775 grenades and 1,000 vibratory percussion caps were flown in from Quajaline while the attack was still in progress. Other units surrendered bars and rifles to equip the 22nd Marines. In addition, the Marines had found the M1 carbine, with which many men had armed themselves, to be less than effective as a combat weapon and M1 rifles and Browning automatic rifles were redistributed from the 106 infantry units to replace them. 
For the last assault of Operation Catchpole, Walker planned to land two battalions abreast directly against the defenders' strongpoints, and after seizing the beachhead, tanks and infantry would press forward to the ocean side of the island. Battleships Tennessee and Pennsylvania took positions only 1,500 yards north of the landing area, and not only mauled it with their big guns, but they also hit it with their 40mm automatic weapon batteries. From the other sides of the boat lanes, the heavy cruisers Indianapolis and Louisville and the destroyer Haley would also fire. Smoke and dust blew over the lagoon, masking the target area for the battleships, and would also have serious consequences for the other warships in the area, such as the landing crafts who were starting to come ashore at 845. Three LCIs that approached through the haze with the first wave to fire their rockets were hit by five-inch shells from Haley, killing 13 and wounding 47 men. Some LVTs landed outside the designated beaches, thus widening the front and making it necessary to suspend the artillery fire in their vicinity. Other tractors crisscrossed or fell behind, so that the landing teams had a difficult time reorganizing on the beaches. While the tractors made their 15-minute run from the line of departure, Two formations of planes bombed Perry in the last of 219 sorties made during the six days of action. This time they only bombed the island, emitting strafing runs because of the type of defense trench systems on Perry Island. At 9 o'clock, Walker's 1st Battalion landed on Green Beach 1, just north of the island's central position, with companies B, C, and A in the line left to right. It was 200 yards too far south, only landing on the extreme southern edge of the assigned beach. The 2nd Battalion landed at 9 o'clock on Green Beach 2 near Perry's northwest corner, but 200 yards further south than intended, with part of the battalion landing on about two-thirds of Green Beach 3 to its southern portion. Mines were encountered on the beach, causing some casualties. In the line going left to right were companies G, F, and E. The first troops struck Green Beaches 2 and 3 at 9 o'clock, with a wave of tractors and one of the LCMs carrying medium tanks directly behind them. Heavy machine gun and motor fire greeted the Marines at the water's edge. As they tried to form an assault line, infiltrating machine gun fire also struck them from a concealed position on the pier at to the right. The machine guns were silenced by grenades and by shells from amphibian tanks. Then the assault passed inland. Some of the enemy in trenches and foxholes in the dune line on the beach, men who had survived the bombardment, were overcome in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Thankfully, shells from the amphibian tanks managed to silence the Japanese guns, which allowed the Americans to move inland and to land their medium tanks behind the battalions. The defense plans for Perry outlined that about one-half of the troops were disposed at the water's edge, where they were to be grouped into strong points about 140 feet apart. The defense of the beaches was to be supported by mountain guns, 20mm automatic guns, and other weapons. The mountain guns and 20mm were the first to fire, Light and heavy machine guns were to fire on landing craft before and after they reached the underwater obstacles. Next, motors and grenade throwers were to deliver concentrated fire against the enemy at the beaches, and they were to cover the sectors between fortified areas and strong points. To facilitate the employment of artillery and heavy weapons, the order called for the fields of fire to be cleared through coconut grooves. The order gave quite explicit instructions for measures against tanks. Destroy enemy tanks when they are stopped by obstacles, by means of hollow-charge anti-tank rifle grenades. Close-in attacks, landmines, watermines, Molotov cocktails. Especially at night, have a part of the force attack them. The order made it pretty clear that the brigade was not expected to survive an American assault once it had established a beachhead. Any troops remaining after the Americans had landed in force were to assemble in a central area. 
Then the order continued. Sick and wounded who cannot endure the battle will commit suicide. Others will reorganize, return to battle as a unit, and die fighting. Three dug-in Japanese light tanks decided to attack, rather than earlier when the infantry were vulnerable. Yet the Shermans immediately destroyed them before they inflicted any damage, so Walker's battalions would be allowed to push forward against the retreating enemy. While Companies G and F swung left to reach the north end by 1.30, E Company drove straight across to reach the ocean shore by 12. Then as the Marines were consolidating, a group of 200 Japanese were discovered marching north, and they were wiped out within just mere minutes. Over on the right, B Company reached the ocean coast at 11.55, while Company C and A swung south and successfully reached Valentine Pier by 1.30. Walker's Reserve 3rd Battalion landed at 10 o'clock, immediately advancing south while clearing bypassed enemy pockets. After artillery bombardment, the attack south was launched at 1.30. Pressing through thick underbrush, both battalions achieved rapid progress as they overran a series of trench and foxhole defenses. The battalions were 450 yards from the island's southern tip when they halted for the night. Walker decided to declare the end of enemy resistance at 7.30, radioing Brigadier General Walker, I present you with the island of Perry at 7.30. The only slight enemy activity that existed anymore was occasional sniping which would be swiftly cleared by 9.30 on February the 23rd. For the capture of Perry, the Marine casualties were 73 dead, 261 wounded against 1,300 Japanese killed, including General Nishida, and 66 captured. In total, American casualties during the Battle of Eniwetok came to 313 killed, 879 wounded, and 77 missing. The Japanese had lost their entire garrison, with 3,380 killed and 105 men captured. Between March the 7th and April the 5th, Walker would then conduct Operation Flintlock Jr., carrying out 29 successful landings, securing 14 mostly unoccupied atolls, and killing another 100 Japanese at the cost of two Marines killed. Other detachments would finally occupy the Erekub, R. Ijalag atolls by the end of April, leaving only Mili, Meliolap, Jalut, and Watye bypassed and unoccupied, in addition to the Japanese presence at Korsre, Wake, and Nauru. Over on Jalut, Rear Admiral Masada Nisuke commanded 13,000 personnel. Beginning on March the 4th, the 4th Marine Base Defense Aircraft Wing, headquartered on Majuro, and the 7th Air Force commenced a concerted campaign to neutralize the Japanese garrisons, which continued until the war's end. Navy aviation and Army air forces had previously destroyed most Japanese aircraft on these islands. The 13,000 tons of aerial-delivered ordnance, coupled with frequent naval shelling, killed 2,564 Japanese, and 4,876 would die of disease and starvation. The Marines sprayed oil over the garrison's gardens. Fighter-bomber units deployed to the Pacific would first serve in this role, perfecting their bombing techniques before moving forward to support other operations, as new units replaced them. The Japanese survivors would finally surrender on the 2nd of September, 1945. As the American commander took stock of what they had achieved in the Marshall Islands, their confidence and self-assurance rose to new heights. In less than three months' time, the tragic and costly lessons of Tarawa had been refined and integrated into amphibious planning and doctrine and the results had been tremendous. 
To the extent that further improvement was needed, it was in the details of execution rather than deficiency in the plans themselves. Holland Smith concluded in his final report, In the attack on coral atolls, very few recommendations can be made to improve upon the basic techniques previously recommended and utilized in flintlock. Back over in Tokyo, there was shock and incomprehension at the speed and low cost of the U.S. victory over the Marshall Islands. The implications for Japan's future were dire. As Ichiro Kiyose, the permanent director of Japan's Imperial Rule Association, said in his address, The Marshall Islands are the front porch entrance to Tokyo. The enemy is probably finally thinking of some such thing as bombing Tokyo in deadly earnest. Yet, that is all for today on the Marshall Island front, as we are now going to be diving back into Burma. The Japanese had launched their main offensive on the Arakan at the start of February, successfully infiltrating through the British positions to cut off their rear. By cutting the Indian supply lines off, the Japanese expected to force them back into disarray, but these were not the same men they had been fighting years prior. The Indian troops were better trained, and ready to put up a real fight this time. This was seen when they faced Japanese attack after attack, using their all-round defensive brigade boxes, referred to as the baby tortoise or beehive tactics. This baffled the Japanese, and soon they would leave the invaders effectively encircled and running out of supplies, as they themselves depended on what supplies could trickle to them over the jungle trails. With increasing fanatical desperation, the Japanese began to press home attacks, seeking to secure vitally needed stockpiled supplies of food, arms, and ammunition, upon which their offensive depended. In the Sinswea area, the 112th Regiment made a night attack on the 9th, successfully breaking through the southwest corner of the enemy's perimeter defense in the Sendwia Basin. Although the regiment was successful in firing an ammunition dump and doing great damage, the enemy's employment of tanks forced it to draw back without further exploiting the breakthrough. On the morning of the 10th, Major General Sakurai met Colonel Tanabashi on Hill 315, due northeast of Sinzuia, and he encouraged him to press the enemy more aggressively. The failure of the 112th to achieve a signal success appeared, however, to have depressed morale, and the regiment was reluctant to repeat its attack. The 7th Indian Division kept its morale high despite the intense fighting, rapidly mounting casualties and increasing exhaustion. They continued to fight on until the advanced Japanese units had exhausted their own food and ammunition. Whenever possible, the British Indian troops also struck back against Japanese positions and harried their already tenuous supply lines. Furthermore, the massive firepower of the British mountain, field, and medium artillery inflicted massive casualties on the attacking Japanese infantry. Firing from positions within each brigade box, carefully concerted artillery fire plans rained death upon the Japanese troops, scattering into the jungle throughout the divisional area. As such, the 71st Brigade would successfully recapture Tong Bazaar on February the 10th and steadily advance southwards towards the Nigaki Dok Pass. That very same day, General Gifford realized that there was no possibility of the 15th Corps being able to reach the Indian Rathadong Line before the pre-monsoon swell made amphibious operations impossible, so he recommended cancelling the Akiab assault. He placed the 36th Indian Division under the 14th Army, allotting the 50th Brigade to the 4th Corps and ordered the 25th Indian Division to move on towards Chittagong. 
General Slim, however, realized that the Japanese plans had miscarried. So he directed General Christensen to resume the offensive against the Tunnels Bithodong position, as soon as he had cleared the land communications to his four divisions. Consequently, as the 29th Brigade of the 36th Division was arriving at Wali, Christensen sent the bulk of the 26th Indian Division to destroy the enemy in the Kalapazan Valley, behind the 7th Division. By the 13th, patrols from both divisions successfully linked up near the Tong Bazaar. But at the same time, the Japanese were bringing reinforcements for their attacks against Sinsuia. The Japanese offensive reached its climax on February the 14th when General Sakurai called for an all-out attack during the evening. The attack was courageous, and it managed to achieve some initial gains, but it was also very uncoordinated, suicidal, and ultimately unsuccessful, ending with Indian reinforcing the admin box the very following day. Meanwhile, elements of the 5th Indian Division regrouped and battered away against a heavily fortified Japanese roadblock at the summit of the Nagakidok Pass. Thus, the Japanese tactical and administrative position quickly went from bad to much worse around Sinsuia, as pressure steadily mounted against its vastly outnumbered troops. After a few days of bitter fighting, the Japanese finally abandoned their positions at Kiatkit and Pinshikala and they began occupying areas covering the routes back to their main positions. By the 20th, the strength of the Japanese striking force had shrunk to 400 men, increasingly debilitated by the lack of sleep and shortages of food. On the 23rd, after a short but sharp fight, a battalion of the 89th Brigade from the east and the 123rd Brigade from the west linked up at Nagakidak Pass, and by the evening they had finally secured it. The following day, as soon as the 500 casualties from the Sinsuia had been evacuated, the pass was open to normal traffic. Thus, air supply from the 7th Division ceased. As Joffrey Evans would later write in his obvious pride. For 18 days, the British and Indian troops, most of them belonging to the administrative services, had withstood the determined attacks of trained Japanese infantry supported by guns and air. It spoke volumes for the war in which the junior leaders had carried out their task and the stout-heartedness of their men. It was at this point General Hanaya recognized the inevitable, and he ordered Operation Haigo to be abandoned. The shattered remnants of Sakurai's command subsequently withdrew in small parties. The very last attack on the Senzuia, made on the 22nd, ended in a complete failure. The following night, acting on his own responsibility, Colonel Tanabashi withdrew his main force to Kringyong, leaving the 8th Company of the 112th Infantry at Nigakidok Pass and the 12th Battalion of the 112th on the small hill south of Sinsuia. Upon receiving a report of Tanabashi's withdrawal, Major General Sakurai was really pissed off, but realized that the move was undoubtedly inevitable, being forced back by a lack of food and supplies. At the suggestion of General Sakurai, the divisional commander determined to suspend the offensive, and he ordered the Sakurai unit to withdraw to the line of the Buthadong Maldong Road. Moving units into the line to cover the withdrawal, the movement south began on the night of the 24th of February, and it was completed by March the 1st. The 1st Battalion of the 213th Infantry, which had been holding positions in the vicinity of the road between Nagangyong and Mong Kinama, since February the 6th, left its positions on the night of the 25th, and after breaking through the enemy lines, returned safely on March the 3rd. Many units would be trapped, however, between units of the 26th and the 36th Divisions advancing from the north and the 5th Division from the east through the Nagakidok Pass, upon the anvil of the boxes. 
In the end, the Battle of the Nagakidok Pass cost the 15th Corps 3,506 casualties, but it also marked the turning point of the Burma Front. The Japanese lost 3,106 killed and 2,229 wounded in what would be the first time they met very well-trained British Indian formations in battle, the first time enveloping tactics aimed at cutting their opponent's line of communications failed to produce the results that they expected. Not only had Operation Hago been an abysmal failure, but it materially undermined the Japanese ability to resist further British attacks. By March the 5th, the 15th Corps had completely recovered and resumed its own offensive against the now disorganized and weakened Japanese forces in the Arakan. Although the Japanese staged a remarkable recovery and still offered dogged resistance, the 5th Division would capture Razabil on March the 12th and the 7th Division would seize the Buthadong and later mop up the Letwudet Fortress in late March. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released episode 3 in my series on General Kanji Ishiwara, titled The China War. That series used to be an exclusive on my Patreon, found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there, you can still find 13 plus exclusive Patreon podcasts. So please, if you want to support me, go check it out. It means a lot to me. The battle in the Marshalls absolutely shocked the Japanese in its speed, efficiency, and low cost for the American forces. Now the Japanese feared the Americans would soon be in range to hit the home islands with their dreaded bombers. Within the Burma front, the former Japanese super soldiers were now realizing the Indian army could no longer be pushed around.